All right. Good morning. Ready to go again. Yay! Quiz this week, right? Regular, back to the normal quizzes that you like much better, I'm sure. Um, as for grading the others, most of the other stuff, I've graded almost everything but your homework, so grades should be up and stuff should be back on Friday. If I get the homework done, you'll get everything back, but otherwise you'll get everything but the last homework back. But everything else is graded, I just haven't had a chance to key in grades yet. So we do have an iTunes quiz that is up through Sunday, so you can take that anytime now, whenever you're comfortable, whenever you've got time. And the pictures went from 17th of September through 17th of October, any time in that range. And then there will be one more coming up in about a month, probably towards the latter part of November, that will cover the last section of pictures. And then I drop one of those three. Yes? I wanted to let you know, I took the iTunes quiz last night. The second question says, um, in the question it says October 20th, it's actually October 21st. Oh. Just so you know. October or September? I think it's October. Because October 21st shouldn't have been on it. So did I say October? Maybe it was September. All right, I'll, ch I'll check it then. Okay. Okay. Yes, thank you. I'll, I'll double check it when I get back after. Okay. Homework five, that one doesn't affect you, but the article review does. So we have an article review due on Friday. And your homework is due November 4th. I just gave that out. So if you missed that last time, I have copies of it. I can get you after class. And then the fun part, the fun one, right? Exam three. Yay. I know. Chapters 10 through 12. So, chapters 10 through 12, it will cover. We're through 10, through 11. I did that little extra bit on the HR diagram. And then chapter 12 is what we're working on right now. So, we should get through chapter 12. Probably won't finish it today. We'll probably finish it and start on chapter 13 on, on Friday. So, we'll be doing, we're doing pretty good right now. Right about, right about back to being on schedule. We were a little bit off. We're pretty much back to being close. So as long as we don't have a freak you know, November snowstorm that takes us out for a couple days, we should be fine. All right, questions on the assignments? No? Thank you for the quiz, though. I will try to remember to double check that. Picture of the day for the day. Saturn again. We looked at Saturn a week or two ago. I think I remember pictures of Saturn we saw. They blur together after a while. But you can see the rings of Saturn here. Actually, Saturn's way off over here someplace. You're not really seeing Saturn, but you can see the rings stretching way out here. And you can actually see four of the moons of Saturn. You see all four, right? Nice big one back there and a littler one in front and one there. And if you can see number four kind of hiding right inside the rings there. So there's actually four moons that you're seeing. The large moon is Titan. It's one of the largest moons in the solar system. And one with actually a very thick atmosphere. So even when we get into, we talk, about the, we talk about the moons of Jupiter, none of them really had an atmosphere. This one actually does. It has an atmosphere a lot like, in, a way, in many ways, a lot like the Earth's. About as dense as the Earth's. Made primarily of nitrogen like ours. No, no oxygen, you know, no, no signs of life like we have. But it's in many ways, in terms of composition and density, it's a lot like the Earth's atmosphere. So it's actually one of those places in the solar system that is considered a potential for having some kind of life. You know, not civilizations, you know, no little cities down there. We have landed, we have actually sent a probe to Titan and landed there, so we've seen it. But possible for having some sort of, you know, bacteria, microbe, you know, single-celled life. Is a it's one of the ones that's considered a possibility. 
The difficulty is it's so far out and so much colder that it doesn't have any liquid water. Now, we'll talk about this hopefully unless we end up losing our last chapter depending on time constraints. But life and life, we, we consider life as requiring water. That's a bias to us from Earth. I mean, every law of life that we know of requires water and requires oxygen and requires, you know, everything we know is based on certain things. Would life be different out here? And would our methods that we'd use to detect it even be the same? You know, would we be able to detect that life? So that's some stuff for the last chapter of the class. So that's one of the moons. The second one, next biggest one in the middle here, is Dione. I remember it without, che without cheating and looking this time. Dione. Now you can see a little bit of structure to its surface, maybe from the distance there. I'm not sure. If you look at the picture a little closer, you can actually see some. Bless you. You can see some structures on the surface. You can see a little bit of detail on this side where there's actually some sort of ridges on it. And if we looked close enough, we'd be able to see things like impact craters on it. Very common in the solar system. We talked about this when we did our little rushed unit on you know, five chapters in a week on the solar system. That there's craters all over the place. So all of these objects would have uh, craters on them as well. So this would be an example. That's one of the, another one of the moons. Then we have little Pandora out here, kind of hiding, a much, little, much smaller satellite than these. This is one of the bigger satellites. Titan would be bigger than our moon. This is a teeny tiny little satellite of Saturn. It's named Pandora. And it's really interesting in that it is the, the satellite. It orbits just outside the edge of the ring system. So you can see the rings sort of almost pointing right to it. And it orbits right around the edge of those, and it helps to keep the ring particles confined in their shape. So it keeps the particle, it keeps them there. Without that moon there, and that moon's only about 80 kilometers across, so about 50 miles across. It's not a giant moon. I mean, 50 miles is a lot, but it's not, it's not, the si not near the size of our moon or anything else. That, but that going around there, those particles would slowly diffuse off into space. Their orbits would slowly diffuse. So that moon actually shepherds them. It's what they call a shepherding satellite, and it keeps them in place. The last one, even tinier, is Pan. And it actually, you see it's kind of in this gap in the rings. It's kind of in, there's a little gap there called the Enki, Enki's gap or Enki division. And it actually has helped to clear out those, that area. So sort of the planets clear out the own, their own parts of the solar system. This moon has cleared out a part of the ring system and given us a gap in it. So it helps us, some of these, ring, these moons, and these are only two examples, well four examples, but two really close to the ring system, that actually help to give Saturn's rings a lot of the detail that we see. Now we looked at that picture last time, or last two weeks, I don't remember, two weeks ago or so, of Saturn, you saw all the detail in the rings. Here you're not seeing near as much, because you're po pointing out the moons this time. But there's a lot of detail in the rings, and the satellite, Saturn has a tremendously big satellite system that is actually helping to cause those. All right. Questions, questions? No? We're ready to get, get off the planets, back to stars. Okay. All righty. And we were right here on this wonderful table, weren't we? <laughs> And I think I'd gotten through the table, and I'll just review it again very quickly. So, it's, again, it's table 12-1 in your book if you want to, so you don't try to copy all these little tiny numbers down. But our last table in the previous chapter took us t pages 1 through 6. 
And guess what? Speaking of that, I'm going to pause this for a second because I was going to show you, there was one other video I was going to show you real quick. We saw, going back to last thing, last chapter reminded me, so I'm glad I did that. Um, we looked at some pictures of star formation. I showed you actually some still pictures from this, simu this simulation that I'm going to run here in a minute where an astronomer, Matthew Bate, had taken a large number of particles in the computer simulation, a 3D sphere, and had allowed them to collapse to see what star formation would look like. So it took like 100,000 hour computing, 100,000 CPU hours on a big supercomputer to actually calculate the gravities and the interactions of each of these individual particles, you know, many millions or a billion different particles and each one of them gravitationally pulling on each other one very slightly and doing all those calculations. And then as we'll let it run, the colors are showing you the density, so as they get dark is, very, is, no, is almost no matter, and as you get towards the brighter, towards the yellows and the whites, you're seeing a lot more matter. So it starts out with very little matter towards the side and a little bit more matter towards the center. And then as I let it replay, it will start to collapse and you start to form some filaments in some areas. Some areas get more stars. So you're starting to form some of those like nebulae that we would have been talking about. And you see some little denser park pockets forming where stars would be forming. Now we're condensing the density. So now we're looking at areas of higher density. And we rotate it. And as we go, we're going to rotate a little bit. So you're getting sort of like a nebula where the stars would be forming. Condense the density again. We're going to look at this area, real close area, and you'll start to see a few stars start to pop out. From what was originally just individual particles, you start to see a small cluster of stars forming. And yes, as they actually happen to get close to each other, you see the gravitational slingshots as some of them get flung out of the cluster altogether. So wouldn't you like to be around one of those stars? And get the only thing is, look at the time frame. You know, you're talking many thousands of years. so. Each blink of your eye is many as a thousand years. So you wouldn't actually notice it if you were there. Some have a disk. Again, more materials. But you're starting to see, you see the dust left around. You're starting to get a very good simulation of really what the pictures we looked at of actual stars and clusters looked like last time. And as you look down deeper into this one core, I think this is somewhere around here is one of the images that was shown in the slides last time. But you're seeing a bunch of stars. This cluster originally had, the gas was about 50 times the mass of the sun. So there's a lot of stars, a few stars there, nothing really giant. But, oops, does it look a little bit like the stuff we looked at last time? I'm going to go back just to the end. I'm not going to play the whole thing again. Essentially, you have an open cluster of stars there. Right? Some of them are getting, have gotten thrown out or getting thrown out as they orbited, if they came too close to one of their companions. And but you do have a dense core of stars there towards the center and some material around it. So it's sort of a simulation that's been done. We looked at the pictures of it. And I thought instead of just looking at still pictures, it's better to go back to the original and see it, see it actually how it, how it occurred, how it occurred. Again, that's a simulation just based on computer models and gravity with each individual particle tugging on each other particle and watching the stars form. So there were no stars in it in the first place. They just formed as these models condense them together as they happen to condense together under gravity. So that's going back to the previous chapter, but since we'd seen some pictures of it, I wanted to include, include the little, little short little video there. All right. Now go back to where we were. From current slide. There we go. Okay. 
So, again, these are the stages. Stages one through six were what we just looked at on that little video. That was the formation of the stars from this big cloud of gas. It started to fragment into those filaments, and those frag further fragmented into stars, protostars, and then would become stars themselves. We got to stage seven was in the last section. Stage seven is here too. It kind of overlaps the two. There's not a chapter on stage seven, even though it's the longest time, because nothing much happens there. That's the sun right now, and it's just sitting there nice and calm for us, putting out its constant amount of energy, which is great. Everything else beyond this is the future evolution of the star and is what we're going to talk about the rest of this class. So, and again, I ask you to note the time frames that this is 10 billion years for stage 7. That's the main sequence life. About 100 million years is the subgiant phase as it starts to leave the main sequence as it's using up all the rest of its hydrogen. It's starting to cool off. Everything else here, the next longest phase is about 5 or 50 million years. So 10 billion years for the life, 50 million years, and everything else is a lot smaller, you know. You're talking hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of years. Very, very short time frames. Till you get down to the end, which you get down to this white dwarf stage, and that's of course is much longer because once the sun becomes a white dwarf, it's going to be a white dwarf for an even longer time because it's done. There's no energy source, there's no changes. Only thing it's going to do is cool off. So that's where we finished up last time. So let's go them over them in a little bit more detail about what's happening. First the red giant branch, stage 9, we're starting to move off. We moved off the main sequence we were on in stage 7. We kind of went through the, we went through the subgiant branch. As I said, you, just, you don't see that. That's really close to the main sequence. You really don't see a lot there. But what is happening is you're getting towards the red giant. That core has run out of energy. So there's no energy production in the core. The very center of it is just sitting there. Is is contracting, slowly contracting. As that contracts, the outer layers get bigger. So the core is getting smaller and smaller. While that's getting smaller, there's still a ring of energy being produced. So there's still places around that core where it's hot enough and there still is hydrogen to produce energy. So we call a shell. So there's a shell of hydrogen around it that is, is burning and is producing energy for the star. And that causes the outer layers to expand. So the core contracts. The shell expands. And it gets that to be what we call a red giant, extending out about as far as Mercury. So now all of a sudden the sun is going to suck up Mercury. It's going to be gone. Mercury will be, you know, inside the sun, it'll be pulled in and evaporated. It's cooled off. Remember, as it moved in the HR diagram, we have our, it's moving from, say, here. And it's moving up towards the red giant. So it's getting cooler and brighter. It's cooling off because it's moving this way and temperature increases that way. So it's cooling off. It's moving towards the cooler end of the HR diagram. And brightness, luminosity, increases that way. So it's getting brighter. So it's getting cooler and brighter. Something's wrong there, right? If it's cooling off, shouldn't it get fainter? I told you a long time ago something about brightness as equaling the fourth power of the temperature. So if something's getting cooler, it shouldn't be getting brighter. It should be getting fainter, right? If everything else is the same. 
but it's also doing something else. What happens also as we go up towards this corner of the HR diagram? What happens to the star? Gets bigger. Also gets bigger. So it's getting a lot bigger. So this isn't quite. So this works as long as the size isn't changing. And I think that's on your homework coming up, isn't it? Yeah. It actually go. It is the temperature. But it also depends on the square of the size of the star if you do it in more detail. And that's actually a homework. That's your one math homework question for this, this time. Only one. But actually has you look at that. That if you, if you change the temperature and the radius, what happens? And it turns out that the temperature is getting cooler. But it's only going from 6,000 degrees to 3,000 degrees. It might be getting half as cool or not even that much. So there is a change in temperature and that would cause the brightness to decrease. But it's going from the size of the sun to 100 times the size of the sun. So this term overwhelms it. And that makes the brightness increase. So that's why these stars get incredibly bright. Even though they're getting cooler, that would make them want to get fainter. Their size is getting many times larger and that will make them brighter. So even though it's a cooler star, significantly it's gone down from 6,000 degrees like the sun to maybe three or 4,000 degrees. It has tremendously changed in size. So it'll be much, much bigger. Bless you. So here, I'll leave my HR diagram up on the board too so I can refer to that as I go through them. But this is what's happened. So we've moved from main sequence, the boring phase, up to the subgiants. So as it was starting to use up its hydrogen and finishing it off, as it continues with that, the core condenses and the core more and more helium condenses at the core, it rapidly goes up towards the peak here. So it goes zooming up to being a very big star. 100 times the size as it was and it's not done yet. It's, still it's going to get bigger later. But at this phase, as it collapses, that core is still getting hotter and hotter. And we told you it takes 10 million degrees to burn hydrogen. Well, there's no hydrogen left at the core. It's all helium. But helium has two protons in each. So you're trying to crash, instead of just one positive charge against one positive charge, trying to repel each other that you're trying to overcome, now you've got two positive charges. So the force is a lot greater. The force is now four times as big as it was. Because it was one, one charge each, so it was one. Now it's two and two is four. So it's four times larger, it's four times the force trying to push them apart. You need a much higher temperature in order to do this. You need 100 million degrees. So 10 million degrees to burn hydrogen, you need 100 million degrees to burn helium. So that's the next stage, stage 10. What happens? Now the core temperature has risen to 100 million degrees. So that's as we moved up here. So it was moving up. And this is what we call for a star like the sun, the helium flash. So it burns extremely quickly and in a very unstable matter, manner for a very, very short time. And I say very, very short this time. This is actually a very, very short time we can understand. This we're talking about hours. Everything else when we talk about a star's life, you know, even the short times are, you know, many, many generations upon generations. This actually is one of the few things in astronomical terms that occurs within hours. What has happened is that core of that star has gotten so dense that even when, that, when the helium starts to burn, it's not in equilibrium. So normally when we talked about the sun, we said it was in equilibrium. It was burning hydrogen 
and that was balancing the gravity and that kept it stable. When the helium starts to burn, it's so condensed that the increasing, the temperature increasing does not, the temperature increasing, the energy production increasing does not cause the star to expand immediately. It takes it a good amount of time, a few hours, relatively short for a star, I mean very short for a star, before it finally expands that core. It takes a lot of energy to that core is compacted so much and so dense that it takes, takes hours of producing much more energy than it was ever producing on the main sequence. It takes all that energy to push it apart, to start to push it apart. So it takes a long time and that occurs what we call the helium flash. So it's a very sudden and all of a sudden the star will then go from where it was and it kind of jumps back down towards the main sequence. Not to the main sequence, but towards the main sequence. And it's going to fall right about in there someplace. A little above the main sequence. So it's going to have increased its temperature and it's going to have decreased its brightness. Again, same things happening we talked about here. That means the size has got to be getting smaller. So sun's going to expand out to Mercury's size as it goes through this phase. Then it's going to contract back in and be maybe only ten times as big as it is right now. And that's, you see on our diagram here, again we've gone up here. The core is just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. At stage nine it hits hundred million degrees. Once it hits that the helium starts to burn and it's just a runaway burning until it produces enough energy to slowly expand that core and restore some sort of equilibrium. Again, it takes a lot of energy, tremendous amount of energy, and it takes a few, it takes a few hours. It takes a very short amount of time, but there's a lot of energy going on in that time. And at that point, again, it's, cooled, it's warmed up a little bit, it's heated, got a little bit warmer, pushing back towards, not quite where it was, but getting close. And it's gotten a little bit fainter and it's moving again. Diagonally down it's going to get a little bit smaller. So it's changing again. Now it settles in. This is that calm phase. Right? I said it had, I think it was, what was it, like 50 million, 50 million years, something like that? So it'll actually last there. Once it's stable, it's actually just like it was when it was burning hydrogen. It's nice and stable here. You can consider this horizontal branch, part of the HR diagram, as the main sequence for helium burning. That's where it's happily burning helium and it's got, it's got an energy source that's nice and stable. It's in equilibrium. It's burning helium at the core, smashing helium into carbon and oxygen and it'll sit there nicely for a few millions, millions of years and be nice and calm again. But again, nowhere near the time frame that we had before. So what happens? Again, the 50 million years it's done. And it's going to go back up. What's happening? We're, fused, we're taking helium, we're forming carbon, we're forming a lot of energy, and the core gets hotter and hotter. As it gets hotter and hotter, it forms more, it burns the helium faster. So it keeps, it builds on itself and it quickly uses up its helium. Again, quickly now is back to an astronomical sense from a human sense. So 50 million years instead of you know, hours as we were talking about for the helium flash. So it will last for 50 million years. But you see you're sort of starting to build up a set of layers inside the sun. And for the sun it's relatively simple. That's about the end of it for the sun. You have the ash at the center, you have carbon at the center, 
not hot enough to burn carbon. Okay, you're only 100 million degrees. It's not near hot enough to burn carbon. And around that you have a shell where helium is being, being burned and a shell where hydrogen is being burned. So as you get further and further out in this inner part you have all the core, all the leftover ash that's there, carbon in this case. Around that you have helium that's still there, that's still being converted. It's hot enough in that area to convert helium into carbon and then that builds on the core. And then you have hydrogen burning into helium which feeds the helium. And then you have this whole envelope out here, the whole rest of the most of the star size-wise that is just sitting there. It hasn't changed much since it's formed. So it's, you're back to the same stage where we were before. Now instead of having just a core of helium that isn't burning, now you have a core of carbon that isn't burning. And instead of just having a hydrogen shell there, now you have a hydrogen and a helium shell. Now for a star like the Sun, that's the end. When we'll look at this for other stars, you'll actually see they, they build up almost like an onion as you work towards heavier and heavier elements. So you'll get, instead of just two shells, you can have five and six and seven different shells burning. It gets much more complicated. And we'll look at that in a little bit. Okay, so now it's gone back to the red giant branch, or what we call the asymptotic giant branch. So it goes back towards the giant branch and towards the supergiants. It moves up again, but now it's up even or the AGB as it's called, asymptotic giant branch, as it moves up there. So it's even bigger. So it's moving further up, further up towards the main sequence, further up towards that upper right where the very large, largest stars are. So it's gone up here, helium, jumped back down, stayed there for a little bit. Now it's heading up again. And as I said, for a star like the Sun, there's no further energy. Oops. Because Here's the example just showing like the diagram of how the sun might change as you go through the stages. But the sun never becomes hot enough for fusion to fuse carbon together. It won't become hot enough. Hotter, bigger stars will. They'll actually reach temperatures you know, well beyond hundreds of millions of degrees where you can actually smash carbon together. Now carbon, okay, I don't have six fingers on each hand, but carbon has six protons, you know. Six protons in each one. You're trying to smash six times six, 36 times what you need to get hydrogen to fuse. And significantly more, so significantly more, you need a very, very high temperature to fuse carbon. The sun never gets that hot. So sort of this graphic is showing the life of the sun on one slide from a little cloud to a protostar to condensing to a main sequence star. Again, the real long, real long boring phase. Then it becomes a red giant and it will eventually become a white dwarf and just fade off. Now it's not showing the two stages in here, it's just showing one red giant phase just because the time is so com compressed. But stars like the Sun or anything smaller will never be able to burn the carbon and they'll be done and we'll talk about what happens to them then. A less massive star than the Sun will not even be able to burn helium. It'll just end up with helium. So if you had a real low mass star, some of these real tiny stars, they'll burn hydrogen to helium and they'll get to helium, but they'll never get hot enough. They're not big enough that their gravity won't pull them together enough to heat up the temperatures to form helium. So they'll actually sit there with a remnant of helium. They'll be the same thing as the Sun, except they only go through that first stage. They don't go through they only go through this first stage of the 
towards the helium flash and then they kind of end. They can't do anything else. So they kind of skip there the way the sun skips here. Another star with heavier mass would be able to start another source of energy. So the core is contracting. The core goes back to contracting again and there's no more, there's no more pressure. There's nothing from the inside to hold it up. So it starts collapsing. And it collapses down as small as it physically can. You know, nothing on Earth is comp- compressed as tight as it physically can be in terms of being ordinary atoms. What the star has done is it has collapsed all those inner areas and it's squished out all the space between the atoms. And everything here, even really dense metals, have a lot of space between, between the atoms. Not just within the atoms, that's even more, but that's, a ne- that's the next chapter. But it squishes all those, so it pushes them to the point where their electron clouds, their electrons are as close as they can be without repelling each other. Electrons are negatively charged, so they want to push each other apart too. So you're pushing them as close as you can get those, physically get those clouds. That's a lot of space. There's a lot of space between the atoms and you know, anything on Earth. Not just in the atmospheres, but in rocks, tables, everything else. There's a lot of space between the atoms. If you crush that all out for a star like the Sun, you take the mass of the Sun and you squish the whole planet down, this whole thing down to about the size of the Earth. So you've smashed the whole thing. The whole of the Sun is left in this little tiny, what we call white dwarf star, which are being shown here. Those are the, that's the inner core of the star. That's most of the mass of the star. Most of the matter in the star was in that core. The outer layers, while very big, did not have a lot of matter in them. They were very big but not very dense. These are examples of what the sun will probably look like, something like this, in five billion years to a distant astronomer looking at our solar system. The the core of the sun will be right there and there will be a shell of some kind around it. And just depending on how the outer layers get pushed off, those outer layers get puffed out into space, sometimes relatively smoothly. Yeah, not too much there. Sometimes something interesting thing happens depending on this. This looks like it was almost a puff one direction and a puff another direction almost because you have one side going this way and one going this way. So there are some interesting things happen there and here even more. So depending exactly on the mass of the star and how unstable it gets at the very end of its life, but eventually that star just gets so big as it goes up here, it just keeps going up. And as it's going up, it's getting bigger and bigger. Well, eventually those layers start out bound to the star, but they get further and further away. The gravity of that star no longer becomes far, uh, strong enough to hold them. And they just kind of expand out into space. So they've actually moved out away from the star. It's just essentially, think of it as the star just continues to expand. It's the same thing that was happening as we went up here. The star was getting bigger. The star was getting bigger and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger until the outer layers of it just float off into space. And all that's left at the center is the core. And that's what we call a planetary nebula. Now, planetary nebula is nothing to do with the planet. It has to do with more how it looks in a telescope. If you look at it through a small telescope, it looks like a little disk. It could look almost like a little planet. Or through a bigger telescope, it could look like maybe there's a planetary system forming. That's how it got its name. It has nothing to do with a planet uh, specifically. All right. So now we have two parts left. We've got, for the sun, we have an extremely dense carbon core. So again, smashed together the size of the earth. And you've got an envelope, the outer layers, that are the size of the solar system. 
And again, I just told you this, but remind you again, that the, that's a planetary nebula. That's what the sun will end up doing. And that's what we said when we mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, we said that the low mass stars go quietly. So, not really a lot. It's got a helium flash. That's about the most violent thing that happens to this star. But most of it happens very, very smoothly, very, very quietly. It puffs its outer layers out into space. The core contracts, and it's done. And it will just sit there. The core will sit there, very hot, cooling off, called a white dwarf star. That's that extremely dense carbon core. And the outer, the outer layers will slowly expand off into space. That carbon core is extremely hot. It'll start off hundreds of thousands of degrees. So much hotter than any star we had on our HR diagram. So it's way off, way off the scale over here. But it's so tiny that it's not very bright. But it's so hot that it actually emits enough energy to excite the outer envelope and cause it to glow. So it actually emits enough ultraviolet energy to cause the hydrogen in that planetary nebula to grow. As it cools off, and starts to cool off relatively quickly, then once it gets cool enough it will no longer be emitting enough energy and it won't be emitting enough ultraviolet and you'll never, it won't be able to see the planetary nebula and that area will just slowly expand out into space. But it will become essentially invisible once the white dwarf has cooled enough. Okay. So here's where we go to the white dwarf phase. Again, we work through everything else. Started on the main sequence up to the red giant, horizontal branch, asymptotic giant branch, kind of jumps over the planetary nebula. This is a very, very fast phase. You really don't see much over here because it happens so quickly that as it starts to get bigger and that core collapses, the outer layers expand very, very quickly and it kind of disappears. So that's where it's becoming a planetary nebula phase. And then it kind of jumps down back here and now you're looking at just the core of the stars. So you're ignoring those outer layers. You're ignoring the nebula that's expanded out into space and you're just looking at the core. And the core comes back down, again extremely hot, and will slowly cool off over time. So it'll go from being hundreds of thousands of degrees to tens of thousands of degrees where we see a lot of them. And then it'll slowly cool off, essentially, eventually down to the background of the universe, about three degrees. But they're so small it takes them a very long time to radiate all this energy. And while black dwarf is the end state of any star like the sun, no star has made it there yet. Hasn't been enough time in the history of the universe for a star to have cooled off that much. So if we could wait 100 billion years and trillion years from now, black dwarfs could make up a big part of the universe. Right now, there's none just because there has not been enough time for anything to cool off. It takes a long time for these to get to that point. Now this dense core is the white dwarf. Again, extremely dense extremely hot and, and tiny. I mean the size of the Earth, 100,000 degrees probably when it's first coming out. The only reason we see them at all, they're so tiny we shouldn't normally see something the size of the Earth, is because its temperature is so incredibly high. So it's only due to that high temperature that we're able to see it. As they cool off, if it becomes a black dwarf, it would be something you'd never be able to see. Be tiny, it would be completely dark, it would be like trying to find, you know, a planet sitting out in space. You wouldn't see it very easily, so a planet just traveling through space by itself, you'd never be able to see it. So here's an example of a white dwarf. Maybe familiar with Sirius, brightest star in the sky. 
a nice winter, nice winter star. Well, Sirius is actually a binary star. There's actually two stars there. There's one really bright star. That's what we see when we look at it. And there's another tiny white dwarf star that actually is orbiting with it. So there's actually two stars, two stars there. That's an example of a white dwarf that we can't see. Now, they're easy to see when they're with something else just because there's another object there to draw your attention to them. You can also see them by themselves. Here's an example from the Hubble Space Telescope picture looking at a globular cluster. Now we looked at a globular cluster last time and we found out that globular clusters were very old clusters. So when we looked at their HR diagrams, all the stars like the sun were turning off, were just leaving, and then you're finding all of these detecting these white dwarf stars here in this diagram. And you see all these little bright, you're looking at just this, just to make sure, this is the whole globular cluster. You're looking just down to this little box if you can see that towards the core. And all these bright blue objects would be white dwarf stars. Those are all white dwarfs that are visible in this cluster. You'd have some red stars that are relatively cool main sequence stars, but there aren't any blue stars on the HR diagrams of these, right? We plotted, we, you had to plot all those, I made you plot all those yucky little points last Friday. And there, were, there weren't any blue stars in them. There were no O and B stars or A stars. There was nothing until you got down to stars like the sun or cooler. So there shouldn't be any blue stars in a globular cluster, at least not main sequence stars. But there are a lot of blue stars, very, very tiny things. And when you look, when you can look at Hubble's telescope, when you can look at fine detail of this, with a telescope where you can get very high resolution, you can look deep into this cluster, you can actually see a lot of white dwarf stars. And that's really what you're seeing in this picture. So there's a lot of them there. And those are all the remnants of dead stars that have gone through this process, very similar to what I've talked about right now. Now what happens to a white dwarf? Nothing much. It just sits, it's just cool, all it's going to do is cool off. There's nothing else that can really happen to it, especially if it's a star like the sun. If it's sitting there all by itself, its not, size doesn't change. It's just cooling off, so it's getting cooler and cooler. But its size doesn't change. It just gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until till it finally fades out of sight. But again, that takes hundreds of billions of years. So we're going from long, re relatively long, when you think of 10 billion years as long, we're taking hundreds of billions to trillions of years for these things to actually cool off. So we've not seen any yet. And we won't within our lifetimes. Let's see another 100, 100 billion years to sit around. But that's not always the end of these. It's not always the end. For, for stars like the sun, it is. The sun won't do anything else. But there are certain types, certain stars, that all of a sudden get brighter. And those are called nova. So a nova is a star that normally looks like this. But all of a sudden, for some unknown reason, it gets really, really bright. And it outshines everything, or it outshines all this stuff around it. But only for a short time, you know, and about three, four months later, it's back to where it was. So it got really, really bright for about a month and then slowly faded off over time. This is also related to a white dwarf star. And this is something that can happen to a white dwarf that is actually orbiting in a binary system. So sort of like I showed you the Sirius um, white dwarf main sequence star combination. This requires that type of combination in order to get this. 
material, to, for, for this effect to happen. So when the sun becomes a white dwarf, it's never going to become a nova. But what might happen, and the Sirius is not a good example because the Sirius system is not that close together, they're further apart than this. But if you're very close, so if this white dwarf star is orbiting relatively close to a main sequence star or a red giant star, then as they orbit each other, it, its gravity can actually pull material from the star onto its surface. So it will subtract the material and it will collect material onto a disk. First a disk around it and it will actually collect material onto its surface. And if it collapses enough, you get enough material there, what's the material that's in the outer part of the star? It's all what? Hydrogen? It's all hydrogen. Well, if you're putting that on a very, very hot surface of a young white dwarf star, it's going to start to burn. It doesn't have to be at the core of the star. It just has to be enough density and enough pressure to actually start that burning. And that's what a nova is, is that it builds up enough hydrogen there, and all of a sudden that hydrogen ignites, burns real quickly, pushes off, and, it's, and then fades out. So it only takes it a matter of a few days to a month. You know, a month later it starts to fade back to its normal brightness and three months later, again, time frames we can understand. Yeah? Yes, with the white dwarf, yes it can. So it can have, it can be, as I said, repeated novas. You can actually do it again. So you could form a nova and then 50, 100 years later it might do it again. You know, depending on how close they are and how quick the mass is being transferred. So yeah, it can occur over and over again. Now there's another one that we'll look at in the next, no, it's the end of this chapter, at the end of this chapter, probably on Friday, that's called a supernova, which occurs, starts off in a similar situation, but something much different happens, and that one can't recur. But the nova itself can, can undergo, you know, it could happen many hundreds of times. It's not hurting the star, it's only the outer layer that's being burned, it's that hydrogen that's collected on the outside that's just burning. So that could occur many times without hurting either of the stars. So here's an example where you see the star back there and you see the debris from the white that burned off the white dwarf and all that energy just pushed all the material so it burns and creates a lot of energy and pushes that material back off into space. And that's what you're seeing in the debris picture here. But essentially what the left is just telling you what I've already told you again. Material falls onto the white dwarf. So that white dwarf catches material, it collects in a disk around it and then slowly cycles onto the white dwarf itself. Once it's got enough, and it knows when it's got enough, all of a sudden it'll just reach that temperature, it'll reach that 10 million degrees is all it has to hit. Fusion reignites all of a sudden. And it burns off that material, it starts nuclear fusion right on the surface of that star. And there's nothing, on, nothing over it holding that in, so there's nothing to hold it together. Normally the fusion occurs at the core, so there's all these layers over it that keep it contained. Well, there's nothing to contain this explosion. So it doesn't last very long, it starts to burn and it throws the material off and throws the rest of the debris off and expands outward and you see like the examples of the shell here. But it's a, while it's a big explosion, it would be tremendous if it were close to us, it's not very big for the stars and they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So as I said, you know, 50 years later the same star could have collected enough material again and undergo another nova. So. They are examples of stars that, they, that are they're examples of variable stars. In fact, some of them are actually classified as variable stars because they repeat this 
sequence. But it's not on a very short time. You're not going to see them doing it every few days to weeks to months. It's many years between the process. It does take a little bit of time for it to collect up that much material again. But it is a repeating process. And it may be a longer. It depends on how far the stars are apart. If they're much further apart and the mass transfer is slower, it might take a long time. It might be, you know, Longer than we'd know. It might take, it might have occurred 500 years ago and it might occur now and it might have occurred 500 years from now. So you might not see the time frame. Some of them do occur on a much shorter frame though. All right. Well, we'll get to, we'll start on stars more massive than the sun and then we'll finish this up on Friday. But they do things a little bit differently. So as I said here, when you have stars more like the sun, we had that helium ignition here. And it kind of shot straight up. Well, when you get to more massive stars, and they, they do things a little, they're a little bit different. Remember when they all came to the main sequence? They followed the same pattern. They ended up different, different places, but they all followed that same general pattern. The same thing happened. It's different when they're leaving the main sequence, when they're going through the end of their life. Then a star four times the mass of the sun kind of zips up here and heads towards the red giant branch and does something similar, but it starts burning helium at some point. And then it's done burning helium, and then it burns carbon, and then it will go up. Now this one, for 10 times the mass of the sun, will do helium and carbon and oxygen. But if you notice, the difference is a star like the sun had that big jump. It went straight up to, to ignite the helium and then jumped back down. The big stars don't do that. Everything happens a lot faster for the big stars. A star like the Sun had all this time for that helium core to condense and get very dense and it had that helium flash. The big stars don't have a flash. They just start burning helium nice and calmly as soon as the temperature gets hot enough. They're so much bigger. So that's why there's no big jump with them at that point. And the same thing with carbon. If they're big enough, they will just start burning carbon or oxygen. They eventually reach an end point where they have to start going up and they end up really far up in that upper right corner. Those are some of the biggest stars in the universe. So those are some of the ones, you know, dwarf the sun, that dwarf the solar system. You know, if you put them in the center of the solar system, all the, plan all, all the planets, you know, all the inner planets and even out to, towards the Jovian planets would be consumed. Now, the beginning stage is the same. So just like any star, no matter where you are in the main sequence, you sit there pretty much until your hydrogen is gone. So you leave the, once the hydrogen fuel is gone, then you start to leave the main sequence and you start to go towards the red giant branch. Now stars like the sun kind of work their way up, up and to the right. Some of these very massive stars just go straight over, go pretty much straight over in between, you know, a little bit more, but they're all heading towards that same part of the part of the HR diagram. They're all heading towards that upper right-hand corner where the large stars. So they're all becoming red giant stars. No stars go zipping away this way over towards the very, very hot, bright blue stars. They all go away and all go towards the red, red section of the di diagram. Everything else is similar. So I'm not going to go through in detail everything that happens with the high mass star. We want to look at the later events. When it, ex when it exhausts its hydrogen, First it forms a hydrogen shell. So it has a core of helium and it has hydrogen energy being produced, hydrogen burning going on in a little shell around that. Then it gets hot enough. No helium flash though, that's the one difference. But it starts to burn helium into carbon. 
So it smashes helium nuclei, three helium nuclei, into a carbon nucleus. And around that, so you've got a core burning, heli- burning helium to carbon, and you end up with the carbon ash, and you have a helium shell and a hydrogen burning shell. So that's sort of where we left off with the sun. That's what the sun did, and the sun ended up there, and the sun didn't get hot enough to burn carbon. So we needed to be a little bit hotter. We needed to hit that hundred, uh, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure of the temperature to burn carbon, but you know, talking many hundreds of millions to billions of degrees to actually start carbon burning. And you noted the differences when we looked at that HR diagram. Okay. The stars, if they're a little bit more mass than the sun, about twice as mass, that helium starts burning gradually. So you only get a helium flash for the low mass stars. That's just because their time frames are so much slower, they collect the material more slowly, they get denser, and it takes that flash of energy to expand it back. When it occurs quickly, the helium hasn't had time to condense down as much. It's still much more spread out in the star, and it just starts a gradual gradual occurrence. When you get to a larger star, say a four times the mass of the sun, they don't get those sharp. We had, the sun had all these little sharp, jagged moves. You know, it went up here and jumped, and then it went down here, and then it jumped again. It did a bunch of little jumps like that. The big, bigger mass stars do not. They go nice and smoothly back and forth, and that's what we looked at. I'm going to go back. We'll come back to this next time, but just to show you. They just kind of, when you get to those much more four solar mass stars, they just kind of, they go back and forth, and they just kind of calmly wiggle back and forth on the HR diagram. They don't have these big jumps that this one, that like the stars like the sun or the lower mass stars will have. And I'm going to come back. i just give you a brief introduction to this because we're about out of time. I'll finish this up on Friday before lab. So questions? Have a good rest of the day.